Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 141 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Balancing Pathways, an interview with Michelle McCune. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm Matt Sabatello. So, Matt, this is one of those stories where you have a college kid taking a job on Long Island, on Fire Island of Long Island, and she's not given any information about ticks or Lyme disease. While she's working on Long Island, she gets bitten by a tick and she crashes. Her body literally crashes. She goes to a doctor on Long Island on two separate occasions and he fails to properly diagnose her with Lyme disease. And that was the beginning of a long diagnostic journey, which should not have been long at all. And Rich, Michelle totally blew me away with her knowledge. After struggling to recover from chronic Lyme disease, she went into hyperthermia and was able to talk to us in great detail about how hyperthermia really works to help Lyme disease and a wide variety of other pathogens and viruses. She also talked to us in great detail about mold and how to identify mold in your system and also in your home and potentially in your workplace. She also went in great detail in talking to us about potential nerve damage that can result from Lyme disease and how to manage and treat those symptoms too. Using all this knowledge, she's created Lyme and Cancer Services to help people like me and the rest of the Lyme community get through this horrific journey. The beauty of the story, Matt, is this young woman, although she had a long diagnostic and treatment journey, she was learning about diagnostic tools and treatment tools all along. And she's now turned those diagnostic and treatment tools into frameworks, which she's now converted into businesses where she's helping other people. So this is a really beautiful story. It's a really beautiful young woman doing great work in the Lyme community. And because of that, I'm really excited to introduce her to the Tick Bootcamp community. Hey, Michelle McCune, welcome to the Tick Bootcamp podcast. Thanks for having me. Your podcast does a lot to advocate for the Lyme community. So I'm super excited to be here. So Michelle, we've been really excited about this interview. We've, uh, we've been looking forward to this and, uh, and it's great that we've finally been able to jive our schedules and get on the same page and, and, and go forward to this podcast. So Michelle, where do you live? Um, so I, I live in Brooklyn. I've lived in Brooklyn for the past seven years. So you're a New Yorker now? Yes. Did you grow up in New York? I actually grew up in New Jersey, Bergen County area. Well, we will not hold that against you because you are now <laughs> a New Yorker. So we're happy to have you in our uh, fine state. So Michelle, um, tell us about what your childhood was like. What was your, your life like growing up in New Jersey? Um, yeah, so I grew up in, in the suburbs and it was, it was nice. I, I had a, a nice group of friends. I had always been healthy. So it definitely was a big switch when I got, when I got sick, but, um, grew up with a lot of animals. So animals has, have been like a huge part of my life. I have a younger brother and older sister and, um, yeah, I was always really interested in school and, and, uh, and then I ended up going to Marist for teaching. So talk to us about what you were dreaming about during your childhood, meaning what, what did you envision yourself doing when you grew up? I envisioned myself being an elementary school teacher. My mom is a teacher and I loved going to her school with her. And, and then I also was a camp counselor and I babysat. And um, so I always just saw myself being an elementary school teacher and then also um, possibly being a guidance counselor as well. So now growing up in New Jersey, which is a tick endemic state, did you have any information about ticks and Lyme disease? I had no idea how serious it was. I had gone camping all growing up and we always used to go on hikes. Grandma Poe was, you know, 15 minutes away. So 
Yeah. I mean, I, I knew what Lyme disease was. I knew what ticks were, but I kind of just thought, all right, you get bit, you'll go on like a few weeks of antibiotics. If you even have to go on antibiotics and it's fine. So I had no idea the extent of how it can change your life. So talk to us about how you learned the information that you just shared with us that you had during your childhood. Did you receive this information at school? Was this the kind of thing that you would learn through your camping experience with your family? How did you learn what you knew about ticks and Lyme disease? Yeah, that's a good question. So um, when I had gone camping with my family, one time I actually did have a tick on my head. And I remember I was playing downstairs and I was rubbing my head and I came upstairs and I was like, mom, I think there's something on my head. And so they, they like took it out uh, and we didn't really do much about it. We called my doctor and he was kind of like, no, it's fine. Like it hasn't been in that long, you're, you're fine. And luckily at that point I, I was okay. Uh, and then in high school- well, actually it, I didn't, yeah, I could have, I got bit years later, which I think was like really what caused a lot of my symptoms, but this could have been like a thing that was in remission for a long time. Um, but, but yeah, then, then I was in a camping group in high school. So we used to Alps, it was called. And so we used to go camping all over New Jersey. Uh, and so they would talk to us about ticks, but they still didn't even really explain the, the intensity of it because I don't think they knew. So let's talk about your tick bite experience when you were in college, right? So you were a college kid at Marist, getting ready to pursue your dream to become uh, a teacher, sort of following in your mother's footsteps. And you take a job on Long Island, which is probably your first mistake. You left the beautiful state of New Jersey and you came to, uh, you came to Long Island and you were working on Long Island. And how did that experience change your life? Uh, yeah, so I was so excited about this summer. I was working at Fire Island. It was with a few of my friends from college and we were working in an ice cream shop and I love ice cream. So it's like the beach plus ice cream, what could go wrong? And then I got bit by a tick. Uh, and I remember going downstairs uh, to work later that day. And all of a sudden it felt like my body was shutting down. I had a hard time talking. It, it felt like my head was super, super heavy. I had a hard time moving. So I went over to a friend and I was like, something's really not right. I think I'm going to pass out. And so we, we got a few people and then they laid me down near the freezer because they thought I was having a heat stroke. And then I started kind of coming in and out of consciousness. Uh, and they well, thought they were going to, oh. Let's set up the scene a little bit more. So you're, you're a student at Marist College at the time. Mm-hmm. You have the summer off and you take a job on Fire Island, which is of course on the, uh, uh, off the South shore of Long Island. And are you living on, on uh, Fire Island? What, what, is, what is your, your situation there? Yeah, so I am living on Fire Island. It's kind of like a dorm style setting that, I, that I'm with a few of my friends from college. And, and then I'm working at an ice cream shop. So now when you arrive to Fire Island, are you told that Fire Island is a tick endemic area? Are you told anything about ticks? Do you see any signs about ticks? I mean, what is your awareness of ticks and Lyme disease specific to the location that you're at when you're enjoying this college, the summer college um, uh, employment experience? So there were a lot of deer on the island and but no one really mentioned Lyme disease at all, which is interesting because Lyme is rampant on Fire Island. Uh, and 
even when I was bit, the doctor that was seeing me on Fire Island was like, no, you don't have Lyme disease. This isn't Lyme. So it really wasn't talked about and it wasn't something that was on my radar. Okay. So now let's talk about that. So you're now on, on Fire Island, you're working in this ice cream shop, you're living with your friends in this dorm style uh, experience and you go out and get bitten by a tick. How did, how did that happen? And how'd you find the tick? So we were, we were going through this hike and that's where I think I was bit. Um, I actually never saw a bite and I never received a rash, but it went from being completely healthy, like most of my life to a complete 180 of having, um, Lyme encephalitis. Uh, so, so the night, the day before my life basically had changed, it was July 1st, 2006. Um, I was going on a hike with a bunch of friends that I met at Fire Island who I'd worked with, and it was this marshy area. And that's probably where I got bit. And then I went to bed that night. The next day when I woke up is when my world kind of um, turned around. So you went from being a healthy gal working, um, working in this ice cream shop to now crashing within 24 hours. Exactly. So talk to us about the crash and what the experience was like. Give us some, you know, some meat on that bone of, of what the crash was like. Yeah, it was, it was really scary. I didn't know if I was going to die that day. Um, I remember I was lying on the floor next to the freezer and, uh, and a manager came over and was like, okay, we're going to call your parents to see what they want to do. And I remember trying to talk to my parents on the phone, but my brain was not functioning. It was, it was like hard to form words and sentences. It was just something I'd never, these symptoms I didn't even know existed and just an extreme amount of head pressure. They ended up getting me up. I didn't get helicoptered out. I went over to the doctor's office at Fire Island. And he was like, you know, I think we should take you to the ER. Uh, so my parents came to pick me up and I went back to New Jersey and I went to the ER that night and I had another episode that night. And they were like, I think you're having another heat stroke. But, uh, but ever since then, when I, when I woke up that summer, I had intense head pressure, almost as though it felt like a ton of bricks were in my head that I had to like hold my chin up. I also had uh, heat, noise, and light intolerance, which, which was weird. You know, you're going from a healthy person and then you walk outside and you're like, why is everything affecting me so much? Uh, and, and then I had a hard time swallowing. Um, it was just like these basic things that my body was used to doing to keep me, serve, keep me alive, just wasn't able to keep going. Um, yeah. And then a very, very bad brain fog and this fatigue that it felt like I was a zombie, just a walking zombie. And, you know, I, I'd been tired before, but this was like a whole nother level. I just really didn't feel like myself, uh, very bad vertigo and balance issues. And I really wasn't getting any answers. So it was scary. Let's talk about the experience you had with the doctor on fire Island. And you would think a doctor on Fire Island, a tick endemic community where there are plenty of ticks, a lot of deer and a lot of Lyme disease would have been able to diagnose you immediately. So what was that experience like? I'm not gonna ask you to give us the doctor's name, but just talk to us about the experience you had with that doctor on Fire Island. Yeah, so I, I remember I ended up going back to Fire Island cause I, I was like, okay, I'm gonna bounce back. Like 
something happened, but my body's going to bounce back and and I'll be fine. And then I still wasn't feeling good. So I ended up going back to that doctor and I was like, something's really not right. I, I don't feel good. And he was like, well, I think you're fine. He, and then my mom told me like, ask him about Lyme disease because I heard it could be an issue on fire Island. And he was like, no, 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 no. You definitely don't have Lyme disease. These are not the symptoms you would have arthritis uh, or flu like symptoms. This is, this is nothing like Lyme disease. Yeah. He, he was not, not helpful. And it, he didn't seem to have a lot of awareness on Lyme disease or tick-borne infections in general. So you saw this doctor a couple of times and you even brought up Lyme disease because your mother suspected that might be your, what you were suffering from. And he said, despite having very classic Lyme symptoms, you did not have Lyme disease. Exactly. And he suggested to you that he was looking for a rash and looking for arthritic uh, symptoms. And because you weren't exhibiting either of those symptoms, he didn't believe you had Lyme disease. Yes. And um, I mean, I had full blown encephalitis in my brain. So the, the symptoms that I was experiencing just even if you're not Lyme literate, it should have been a red flag. Like this person is really sick. Some, something serious is going on. And um, like this, these are the type of tests that you should have. And he, he just kind of poo-pooed everything. Uh, he was like, yeah, no, I think you had a type of heat stroke, but you'll be fine. So now your parents come and pick you up. They take you to New Jersey so that you can go to a, um, an emergency room in New Jersey. And what was your experience like there? I had a bunch of different tests done. I had MRIs and CAT scans and a whole panel of blood work and everything came out negative. There was no sign that anything was wrong with me. And I am, I'm not someone that complains. And, and so I know the doctors don't know me, but my family, if I'm not someone that like really complains and, and I, not that I was complaining, but I was, I was really bad. I was like, I don't, I don't know if I'm going to make it tonight. Something's really, really wrong. Um, yeah, I feel like no one was really understanding how serious it was, but at the same time, like no one has ever experienced this before. So it's, it's hard to really so get it. Let's capture the breath of your diagnostic journey. So you're an 18 year old kid, never sick in your life. You now crash. You have classic Lyme disease symptoms. You see a doctor on Fire Island who couldn't diagnose you. You now go to a hospital in New Jersey. They can't diagnose you. How long does it take you finally get diagnosed with Lyme disease? Uh, let's see. Uh, this, so this happened the summer after freshman year of college, and I wasn't diagnosed until the year after I graduated college. So yeah, that's that's like four years, four okay. and a half years. Okay, so you had... So let's talk about the four years between the time that you first show these severe Lyme disease symptoms and the time when you're finally diagnosed. How many doctors did you see between the genius on Fire Island and the doctor that finally diagnosed you with Lyme disease? Probably around like 40 different doctors. I was, I was, you know, I lived in New Jersey, so I was right next to Manhattan. So I was going to what I thought were the best of the best for, uh, for some a condition that I, that I had. And I, yeah, I was diagnosed with a bunch of different conditions, but never a tick-borne infection. Let's talk about the four years between your, um, your crash and your diagnosis. How did your symptoms develop over that four-year window of time? Oh, it was brutal. Uh, so I remember, you know, that summer I'm still not feeling good. And now my second year of college is about to start. And I was like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to function at school. Do, do I try to go back or do I stay at home? And I ended up 
trying to go back to school and I, I felt terrible and I had, I had a really good group of friends, but they didn't really understand what was happening to me. And so I felt very, very alone. And I just, I knew that something was serious and that this was not going to be, it was not going to go away easily. Uh, so I remember one time in the cafeteria, I was getting my food and all of a sudden my neck started twerking to the left and I, and I developed a movement disorder called cervical dystonia. And that was the worst because, you know, I'm in college and my neck doesn't function. And so I'm, I had my hair done. I'd hold my hair to have my, my neck, uh, kind of function like a normal person, but I would have to do presentations and I'd be up in class doing presentations with my neck, basically twitching and one it's embarrassing and two it's just like what's happening with my body like why can't I why can't my neck function and yeah no one because I looked okay minus my my neck no one was taking it as serious as as it actually was so and and they also didn't know what to do like we had seen a lot of doctors so it's just yeah it was scary so talk to us about that neck pain and how this uh, this dystonia uh, affected you both physically, emotionally, and socially. Um, it was on my mind all the time because if your neck doesn't function, you kind of have to position like, how am I going to sit? So so my neck's not like moving like this. And, and so I ended up staying in a lot more and being a lot less social. Plus, I just didn't feel good in general. But when I came back for Christmas break, that's when my family was like, okay, I don't think you can go back to school for your second semester. And, and that's when doctors were like, oh yeah, her, her neck really isn't, isn't doing good. Like something is going on. Like maybe there is a neurological issue. And, and that's when I went to a movement disorder doctor and he said, yeah, you know, you probably had a virus and it, it created damage to your seventh and eighth cranial nerves. The damage is done, but uh, but you have something called cervical dystonia, and and this may be a condition that you may be left with for the rest of your life. I started getting botulinum injections every three months, which helped. But the thing is, like cervical dystonia, you people don't get it when they're eighteen years old. People usually get it when they're in like their forties or fifties. So that, that should have been a huge red flag. Like why is this 18 year old having cervical dystonia when she was completely healthy her entire life? Yeah. Now, these symptoms were preventing you from now pursuing your dream of becoming a teacher because you couldn't go to school. And it was also interfering with you socially because your friends didn't understand what was going on with you. And, and, and let's talk about that a little bit. Um, how were your friends reacting to you? Were they questioning whether you were really sick? Did they think you were being dramatic? What types of challenges were you facing? Were they just, you know, sort of sick of you being sick and not being able to uphold your, you know, part of the social contract where uh, you had to be the fun friend that you had been before? So I was really fortunate to have very supportive friends that just always wanted to help and, and support me. Um, even for like the age group that I was at, it's, it's hard for people to like fully grasp that. And, and I was really lucky that I had supportive friends. Um, my family, I felt like really didn't understand it. And, and yes, they were bringing me to different doctor appointments, but um, my, my, my dad's pretty intense. He was, he's in the air force. And so I think in his mind, he was like, okay, she's supposed to go to college. Like, you know, this is, this isn't part of the plan. Um, and so that kind of pressure, uh, 
affected me. And how? Um, how, how did the pressure of your dad's vision for your life plan impact your healing? I remember not not knowing if I should stay back this semester and focus on my health or uh, go back to school because it might derail my future. And what I kind of needed to hear was, this is your health. Like we should just focus on your health. And that's not really what I was hearing from him. Uh, he, just, he just didn't really get it at the time. Um, but yeah, it was, it was really scary. I felt very alone and I felt like I was disappointing him. Well, now we, we recognize that stress is a really important issue to manage when you're going on a healing journey, right? And, and so you're not feeling well and you have the stress of not feeling well. Your dreams are being interfered with because you can't go back to school. You're disappointing your dad. Talk about how that cycle of stress was impacting the developing, developing symptoms that you were suffering with Lyme disease. Stress plus Lyme equals a bad combination. Um, so yeah, any little stress would cause my symptoms to, to flare up. And, and I'm someone who, who does put a lot of stress on, stress on myself. Um, I usually have a plan and I try to do everything to move forward with that plan. So part of the stress was myself doing that. But, but yeah, it just... It's just a combination of yeah, loneliness, stress, and then being in so much pain and not having answers. At that time, my physicians were saying, okay, you know, you, you had a virus, you're dealing with a lot of vertigo. They actually noticed 70% nerve damage as well and a cervical dystonia. So at that point I was like, okay, my plan is I'm going to get botulinum injections every three months to help my neck. I'm going to do this. Uh, I was doing vestibular rehabilitation. So I'd go a few times a week. I'm going to do that. And then by the time the next semester of school starts, I'm going to be feeling a lot better to go back to school. So I was trying to have that plan in my head to just keep my sanity, but I really wasn't moving forward that much, which was scary. So talk to us about what the vestibular therapy was like. What was that experience like? Oh, it was, it was brutal because the vestibular exercises that they had me doing was moving my neck from different areas and my neck wasn't really functioning. The movement to software that I was going to was still figuring out it's, it's an art, uh, the right dosage for my neck. So I'm doing these exercises because I have 24 seven vertigo and imbalance issues and ear pain, but it's making my neck worse as I'm doing it. And it's just a disaster. What other symptoms were developing while you were going through this portion of your diagnostic journey? What else, again, during that four-year window, uh, were you experiencing and what other doctors did you visit with? Uh, yeah, so I would say ear pain was one of the worst symptoms. It almost felt like a golf ball was in my ear and trying to get out. It was excruciatingly painful, even like hugging someone, I had to be careful, putting on like a shirt, I had to be careful not to touch my ear. It felt like uh, another symptom that was really bad is the the left side of my face felt like it was drooped down and had so much pressure. It wasn't drooped down. It looked normal, but it, it was probably just like the nerves in, in my face, uh, which is very common for tick-borne infections. They like to attack the sixth, seventh, and eighth cranial nerves. 
Um, and, and then I still had a lot of brain fog and then just an immense amount of head pressure on the top of my head. And then I had head pressure on, um, kind of like where you fall asleep at night. So I had to sleep on my side not to touch that part of, part of my head. Yeah. I was super sensitive to everything and just felt like I was in a fog. My body was shutting down even like vibration. I remember being in my bed and a plane went over my head and that was excruciatingly painful, any type of noise or vibration. It's kind of interesting looking back on it now because mold and lime go together hand in hand. And the house that I grew up with, we didn't see any mold. It was a nice clean house, but it was an older home. And I think the ear pain was really uh, due to the, the mold factor as well. Um, because when I ended up going back to school later on, a lot of that ear pain went away, but, but yeah, my symptoms were still pretty extreme. And then I saw, um, let's see, like a cardiologist, I was having heart issues at one point, uh, a doctor to look into my hormones and an endocrinologist. Yeah. I, I saw the whole gamut of doctors. Now you said that you had to take off that next semester of college. Did you ultimately go back to college despite dealing with all of the symptomology? I did go back to college and now we're talking about my junior year. And because I left college for that semester, Marist College wouldn't let me live on campus again. They're like, well, if you live off campus, then you can't come back on. And I was like, I need support. Like I'm, I'm sick. And so my friends advocated for me. They actually went to um, like a school meeting and, and was like, we, we want her to live with us. Like whatever we have to do to make this happen, we want to make sure she's supported. So I was really fortunate to have a good support group at school. And yeah, I would, I would go to class, not feel good, but at least it was some type of normalcy that made me feel a little bit like myself. The, the, also the funny thing is Marist is, you know, like a, a few blocks away from Dr. Horowitz's office, who I ended up seeing a few years later when I was diagnosed. And it's Way just to get like, to that. Yeah. I had so, only known at that time. Right. Well, and perhaps you wouldn't have been able to get in anyway. So, that, mm -hmm. so, you know, these things all happen on the timeline that they're supposed to happen on. So let's, let's talk about your experience at Marist. So you were able to complete your education in a little over four years. Yeah, I completed everything on time. I decided to take classes over the summer, uh, that next summer, so that I think I was taking like four classes. It was a really intense summer, but I had a plan that I was going to finish on time and then be a teacher. So I was going to do everything I needed to do to get there. So how did that work for you where you were putting that additional pressure on yourself to complete the courses that you didn't take during that semester you had to take off? Did that, you think have a negative impact on your, on your healing journey? I think that it probably did because stress causes more inflammation and more symptoms, but, um, I was able to fortunately manage it and get through the classes and it was nice to graduate on time. It would not have been the end of the world if I had to graduate later. Um, but but in my mind, this is this this was my plan, and so it was it was hard to kind of navigate from that. So, were you getting sicker and sicker during that four year window, or were you just largely dealing with the uh, the cervical dystonia and staying with that cervical dystonia diagnosis? My symptoms would go through flare ups, so I never ever felt good. But then there would be some times that I would feel a lot worse, 
And again, because I didn't know what I had, I couldn't figure put the pieces together and be like, okay, well, why am I, why am I feeling so bad this week? And, and this doesn't really make sense. And yeah, so I would definitely have a lot of flare-ups and it was just trying to navigate how to handle my flare-ups while I'm at school. My mom actually would drive me I think it was like once a week, we would go to this neurological chiropractor to help with my symptom flare-ups. So we did that for a year. You know, she'd come all the way to Maris. We'd go all the way. He was in uh, the New Jersey shore area. And so, yeah, it was, it was an ordeal, but uh, I ended up getting through it. So when did you get your Lyme disease diagnosis? So it was... Let's see. It was in 2010, I want to say. It was a year after I graduated college. I was teaching and my body was crashing by the end of the year. Um, so I had to take a medical leave, which was really, it was really difficult to do that. But I was, I was completely disabled at that point. And I was on my computer trying to do research. And I was reading this woman's story that sounded exactly like mine. So I contacted her and I was like, Hey, this is very familiar. How did you get your Lyme diagnosis? Because I've been tested by Lyme and it keeps, keeps coming out negative. And that's when she opened up my world to, you don't, you can't go to just like a general physician. You have to go to a Lyme specialist and here are the different tests to look into. So I, I got my Lyme diagnosis when I went to Dr. Kenneth Liegner and yeah, he helped me with that. So now what was different when you went to Dr. Liegner? Uh, my experience with Dr. Liegner was the first time that I had hope, where all of these other doctors, they kind of would just look at me and it was a puzzle and it was either like, I don't know, or their answer was you're depressed uh, and you're anxious and, and you should be on medication. So no one was really getting it until I saw Dr. Liegner, and he was like, okay, this, this actually makes sense. I don't know if it's a tick-borne infection, but we're going to do some tests to get some more clarity. And he knew the right tests and the laboratories to go to, to get that diagnosis. And having a name to what was making me so sick was crucial. It was like one of the happiest days of my life. Little did I know what a nightmare Lyme disease can be. But at the time I was like, great, like, this is why I don't feel good. And now people can kind of understand why I'm not doing well and that it actually is something serious. But Lyme had been a part of this diagnostic journey from the very beginning. Your mom had thought perhaps you had Lyme disease when you went to the very first doctor. I want you to give us a little bit more meat on that bone that distinguishes what Liegner was doing diagnostically that everyone else wasn't doing, even though there were suspicions that you had Lyme disease before you received the diagnosis. He was actually the first doctor that was, that I felt was really listening. The initial consult was, I don't know, a few hours long and he was writing everything down. He was super, super thorough. And even the questions that he was asking uh, about like certain symptoms, like, Hey, do you have foot pain? And I think that was specific for like Bartonella. It was just like, Oh, he, he's, he's getting this. Like he is asking me questions that he, he knows where we're going with this. And in regard to testing, uh, I was tested at Igenix. I also had a spinal tap, um, which actually a spinal tap isn't one of the best tests for Lyme disease, but the urine sample that I took before that spinal tap was the uh, 
test that came up positive. So it was a, a positive Lyme test through my PCR. And yeah, it was, it was nice to get that diagnosis. So now you finally have a diagnosis. How does the diagnosis affect you socially? Meaning how does it impact your relationship with your dad who seemed to be a suck it up kind of gal? How does that affect your relationship with you and yourself? Did you have more compassion for yourself and now have uh, you know a, a better understanding of what was going on? And how did that make you feel about having to take the time off from now your dream profession? I mean, you achieved your dream. So go through those three different elements for us. So it was good. It was, it was really helpful that I had a diagnosis and my friends were totally on board with doing what they needed to do to help me with treatment. Um, my family was happy that I had a diagnosis. I don't think everyone in my family still fully understood how serious this was. I, I had tried different treatments uh, with Dr. Ligner and I wanted something a bit more aggressive. My, my goal was Hey, I'm going to do this treatment for, you know, maybe it'll take a year. And then I'm by next year, I'm going to be back to school teaching. That's my goal. So I, I want more aggressive treatments to get me there at a faster pace. So I looked into a different physician and I ended up seeing Dr. Horowitz. Uh, we did receive treatment and my mom would come in and she'd help me with my IV antibiotics on a daily basis. Uh, and my friends would come over and they would do my glutathione IVs on a daily basis. And my family started doing more research and started understanding it more. So over time, it, it got to the point where people did have an understanding, but there was a transition process where it did feel lonely for me that people weren't understanding it. So Michelle, before we go into Dr. Horowitz and your treatment with Dr. Horowitz, I want to go back to your diagnosis because many people reach out to us on a regular basis asking us what the best testing is for Lyme disease and co-infections. And you mentioned Igenix, which is a very popular one, but it sounded like you said that Igenix didn't pop the positive results. It was the urine test. Was the urine test done through another lab? So the urine test was done through Igenix, uh, but there are a lot of labs that I like using. I like using Igenix for Lyme disease. Uh, in regard to co-infections, I really like using Fry Laboratories. I like DNA Connections and I like Galaxy Diagnostics specifically for Bartonella. RMN Labs is another lab that I love using for my clients for Lyme and, and co-infections. And I think you literally just hit every single popular lab we have heard on the podcast. So that was, that was actually perfect. So now going back to your experience though, with Dr. Liegner, before we get to Dr. Horowitz, what treatment were you doing with Dr. Liegner to treat your Lyme disease and co-infections that you were diagnosed with from all of this, these testings that you had done? I was doing oral antibiotics and I wasn't seeing enough results. And so because from the research I did, a lot of my symptoms were not neurological. I feared that if I just stayed on oral antibiotics and didn't do intravenous antibiotics, that it wouldn't go through the blood brain barrier and get to the point where I needed to fully recover. Um, I also wanted to do a little bit more of a whole body approach. So more supplements, probiotics, and, and when I did more research, it felt like um, Dr. Horowitz was open to IV antibiotics, but then also was going to help with the supplemental portion as well. Was Dr. Liegner not open to the option of using IV antibiotics to treat you? 
He was, he was open to it. Um, he, yeah, I mean, he was the first doctor that really helped me and moved me forward. But I think because I had a time frame of when I wanted to get better, um, I wanted to try a second opinion and see if, if we were on the same page a little bit more to get faster results. And that doesn't mean that they're, you know, just because I thought that way it was right. It just, it was the research that I was doing at the time. And many people want to get in to see Dr. Horowitz and his weight, I think is years if he's even putting you on a wait list anymore. So how did you manage to get into Dr. Horowitz so quickly to get that second opinion? Um, yeah, it was very difficult to, to get in. I had a friend at the time that was a friend of the, of a friend that was dealing with Lyme disease and he was going to Dr. Horowitz. And so they actually kind of got me an in and in, in getting with him, which was really helpful. Now, when you first saw Dr. Horowitz, what was his assessment of your health and what was that visit like compared to your visit with Dr. Liegner? It was, it was actually pretty similar. They were both incredibly thorough and taking my case very seriously, asking the right questions. And I felt heard and, and, uh, and that I was going to be able to move forward that these are physicians that understand my condition and were going to help me in the treatment process. How did Dr. Horowitz's treatment plan differ from Dr. Liegner's treatment plan? Um, I would say that we went over a bit more options of IV antibiotics and, and then I also did bicillin injections. And then I had specific questions with different supplements. So, so he was able to help me, uh, understand a little bit more on how to support my system with supplements. So can you talk to us more about what a bicillin injection is for our listeners, please? So bicillin injection, they, it's, it's basically an antibiotic and it is a shot and you, you shoot it, um, on your butt and it's incredibly painful. So yeah, I'd have to get these bicillin injections. I want to say it was like twice a week and I would have like hard spots on my butt because it, it was just bruises, but, uh, it was a more, absorbable way of getting in antibiotics. And so before trying IV antibiotics, I thought, okay, first I'll do oral, then I'll do these injections. And if that doesn't work, then I'll go to IV. So you pivoted from oral to these injections with Dr. Horowitz and how did your health change if at all from the oral antibiotics to these injections? It didn't really. Uh, yeah, I didn't really see results. So then it sounds like the next step was Dr. Horowitz realized this wasn't helping you and then put you on the IV antibiotics. Yes. So I went on IV antibiotics, some oral antibiotics, and then I was still detoxing with glutathione and vitamin C and Myers cocktail. So talk to us more about the process of detoxing and recognizing when you would have to up your detox game and, you know, to really give people advice because we get questions a lot about how to properly detox and what clues to look for and what symptoms to look for that mean you need to detox. Yeah. So I didn't really fully understand the extent of how important detoxification was. I was so toxic and so, so full of pathogens that, you know, I would receive glutathione ideas and I wouldn't feel any better afterwards. So I was like, okay, this is kind of a lot of money. Is it really doing anything? Um, same, same with like Myers cocktail and, and I had tried saunas and, and wasn't noticing any results, but 
Um, later on, when I lowered my pathogenic load, when I tried detoxing, I actually noticed the benefits and I realized, wow, there's actually really something to detoxification and it's incredibly crucial in the recovery process. So Michelle, I think you just hit on a really important tip right there that if your pathogenic load is so high, detox protocols may not be effective until you start to kill off the pathogens that are in your body. And then you may see a benefit from these detox protocols. So I think that whenever you're treating pathogens, it's so important to detox. Um, even if you don't initially see the results, just because you're not noticing immediate symptom relief doesn't mean it's not working. Um, and a lot of times if people are super toxic, then when they, when they do a glutathione IV or a sauna, sometimes they, they even feel worse. And that again, doesn't mean that it's bad for you. It just, it just means sometimes that you're super toxic and we need to continue detoxing to really decrease this inflammation. And talk to us more about the IV antibiotics. So you mentioned when you went from the oral antibiotics to the injections, your health was about the same. How was your health when you pivoted from the injections to the IV antibiotics and these detox protocols? So I actually did get a little bit better with the IV antibiotics and, and the detox protocols. I was moving forward and I was like, okay, you know, my body's finally responding to treatment. Uh, I also put myself on like a strict diet of low carbs, low sugars, and I, and I was moving forward slightly. And then I got a blood clot, uh, th through my pick line and I went, they, they took my pick line out. I went off of antibiotics and I got a lot worse. I had a huge symptom flare up. One was like the stress of the blood clot and the other was probably, you know, getting off of antibiotics. My body couldn't handle that. So how did you respond to that? Because you were doing better than you had this blood clot. You had to go off the pick line, your health declined. How did you respond to that decline in your health? Not great because I had a plan that I was going to go back to teaching in a year. And so, you know, IV antibiotics were the answer for me. I was going to do these IV antibiotics and I was going to do it aggressively, no matter like what it took, even if it was painful, I was going to do what I thought was the best treatment to get there in a year. And when this, when my body was not responding to this treatment, I was like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? Like, what other treatments are there? And am I going to feel like this forever if my body doesn't respond to this treatment? So it was, it was really stressful. I, yeah, I had no idea what a journey tick-borne infections can, can be and that it was going to be a long road for me. Now, how did your treatment plan change after the blood after the blood clot and the removal of your pick line? Okay. So I actually ended up having I had a lot of issues with, with pick lines. I had a blood clot in my right arm. So then they switched it to my left arm. I then received two DVTs in my left arm. And, and then at one point the tube actually went up my neck. So, you know, it, yeah. So I'm getting infusions one day and all of a sudden I feel liquid going into my neck. And I was like, this is, this is weird. Something's not right. So they, they did a scan and they immediately took it out. Uh, yeah. So, so every time I had to get those out and, and then try again, I would relapse because I'd, I'd be off of those IV antibiotics. And so finally, you know, I went on blood thinners to prevent the, the blood clots from happening. But the tricky thing is this isn't that uncommon when Lyme dies, it makes your blood thicker. And so it's not uncommon for people with tick-borne infections to also get blood clots. Um, so, so yeah, at the time I didn't really understand why it was just like, 
one thing after another, I'd move one step forward, two steps backwards. But now looking back, it's like, okay, this, you know, this happens. So clearly you couldn't proceed with your plan for IV antibiotics for a chunk of time because you kept having these issues with your pick line, having to remove it, going backwards, getting the pick line put back in, having to remove it due to another complication and that pattern repeated. So at what point did you decide that this just wasn't going to work for you specifically? And then how did your treatment plan change again after realizing that IV antibiotics weren't going to work because of all these complications? Yeah. You know, I think with, with medicine, um, everything is risk benefit. And so antibiotics can be very beneficial for a lot of people with tick-borne infections. I had so many biofilms. I had protozoa rheumatica, which is a co-infection that creates a ton of biofilms. And so I think that was preventing the antibiotics to work as efficiently as they could. And at that point, the doctor that I was seeing was like, okay, you know what? We're not seeing the results that we should be. And and we need to reassess the situation to figure out what the best treatment plan is for you moving forward. Because we've been at this for, you know, with this doctor now over a year and we're not seeing the progress that we would like to see. So I was retested at Fry Laboratories. Fry Laboratories is really cool because you can actually see the blood smear and how substantial the infection is in your system. And I came up positive for the co-infections Bartonella that we tested and protozoa rheumatica. And my doctor was like, okay, we're, we're not really able to get at this infection. You definitely have a lot of biofilm communities. And at that point I was really sick. I had lost so much weight. I was down to 90 pounds. I, I couldn't recognize my friends, family, or myself. Half of my hair had fallen out. Um, severe vertigo, severe head pressure, anxiety, derealization, depersonalization, which was the absolute worst. Um, very bad depression that I had never experienced before. Yeah, it was, it was kind of a crisis period. And, and so that's when it was recommended to look into hyperthermia treatment. So Michelle, before we go there, you mentioned that you were pretty much feeling worse than you were in the beginning because one step forward, two steps backwards over and over and over again. And then you just mentioned a really important term, this depersonalization and derealization, which we hear a lot in the Lyme world, but not many people really understand what that's like and what that feels like for somebody with Lyme. So can you explain that to the best of your abilities, what it's like to have this depersonalization? Yeah, so in regard to derealization, depersonalization, um, it often can come from the co-infection Bartonella or if you're exposed to mold. So those are like, if you have that symptom, that's kind of like a red flag for either possibly Bartonella um, or mold, but basically brain inflammation. And for the depersonalization, it's probably the most uncomfortable um, symptom. I would rather be in pain than have this depersonalization because it didn't make me feel like myself. I remember looking at my hands. You look at your hands, this is probably a weird analogy, but, but you look at your hands and you, and you recognize it, that that's a part of your body. But I would look at my hands, I would look at myself in the mirror and there was no connection that, that like, it was just a complete disconnect of who I was as a person. Um, so that was really frustrating. And, and then this derealization, it was like, I was watching my life in a video and it almost created a sense of like, I'm, I am someone who, uh, I'm pretty persistent. And when I have goals, I want to do everything to achieve it, but it almost made things feel unreal that it, that nothing really mattered. And, and because that's not part of my personality, I'd still try to keep going, but it was just this inner, 
inner derealization, depersonalization that really affected me um, neurologically and, and feeling like this was worth continuing. My life was worth continuing. It just really makes you not feel like yourself. It's a, it's a really messed up feeling. Yeah. So now you have all these additional symptoms plus the worsening of your existing symptoms and you start to look at hyperthermia. So when you start to look at hyperthermia, what are your next steps to actually follow through and have the hyperthermia treatment? So there was not a lot of information on hyperthermia at the time. And I thought it sounded pretty, uh, pretty scary, you know, heating your body up above 105 degrees that I don't know. I, I wasn't about to do that. And so I met with my family. I remember my uncle, John came to the doctor's appointment with me and my mom. And so we all did a lot of research. My brother came back. He, he met with me and then he did a ton of research. We reached out to a few people that had gone before. And after talking to the physicians over at the hospital that I went to, we, with all the information that we had, we felt like, okay, this is probably my body's best chance of getting better. But this hyperthermia hospital was in Germany. And I was like, okay, how am I going to get there? I, I have 70% nerve damage to my left inner ear. Uh, some of the doctors are recommending that I won't be able to fly over there. And so they actually suggested, well, you, you do need to get over there because this is, this is your best shot of getting your life back. And so we looked into getting a boat over there. And this was in the middle of the winter where there's, you know, there's not really boats going going there. And so we, yeah, it was, it was a disaster. So then my dad was like, all right, let's, um, let's rent a, uh, it was like a little jet. And so we were, we went up very slowly on this jet to see how my ears could handle it, handle the pressure. And it was painful, but I was able to do it. And then we slowly went down and this was just like, we rented it for like an hour to see how I would do. And I did. Okay. So then we were like, okay, let's, um, let's buy a plane ticket and see if I'm able to make it over there. Now, these, these consults with your doctors about hyperthermia, was this still Dr. Horowitz you were consulting about going over to Germany for hyperthermia? Yes. So, um, yeah, Dr. Horowitz had been incredibly helpful in trying to figure out different ways to move me forward. And, and so he, he didn't really know a lot about hyperthermia treatment, but um, he had recommended people to contact if I wanted to find out more information about it. And so I did make those connections with those people. And from there I made the decision, okay, this is, this is what I want to pursue. So now talk to us what it was like going to Germany and going to clinic St. George to get this hyperthermia treatment. Well, <laughs> I, I mean, I had 24 seven anxiety and, and I wasn't sleeping at that point. I didn't feel like myself. I was, I was another person. So I, I was one nervous about, okay, I, I feel like I'm going crazy. Um, and, and I, and I thought I was going crazy and I didn't understand that it was just so much inflammation in my brain. Um, so it's like, how am I going to try to act normal in an inpatient hospital for like two to three weeks when I have like 24 seven anxiety and I'm just, I'm a mess. Um, so I was, I was really nervous about that, but fortunately the experience went well and there's a lot of other other people there with Lyme disease so they get how serious it is and it was really nice to be at a place where it's like okay this is my time right now to focus on getting better and you're getting 24 7 care and and people are acknowledging that yeah we, we get that you really don't feel good and 
we're going to try to help get your life back. So although it seems like a really scary process to fly over there, be in a foreign country with people you don't know, it was actually the opposite because they understood what it was like to have chronic Lyme disease and tick-borne diseases, and they made you feel comfortable while you were there. Yeah, I mean, I actually still keep in contact with the people that I met uh, with Lyme disease that were going through treatment the same time I was. And my mom came with me too, which was really nice. Um, So I had that support as well. So talk to us in more detail what it was like to be at the clinic and get the treatment. Was it just the hyperthermia? And how many, how many, I guess, how many times did you get hyperthermia while you were there? Good question. Okay. So, you know, you get there, you meet your team of physicians and they go over the plan for you that you have every day and they keep you really busy. So before you have your hyperthermia treatment, they want to detox you. The less toxic you are, the better you tolerate treatments because so many pathogens die that create more toxins. So for the first four to five days, you're doing a lot of detoxification, which includes IVs of vitamin C, IVs of glutathione, Meyer. Myers cocktails, uh, ozone infusions, colonics, enemas, ionic foot baths. And yeah, they're really doing everything they can to support your system. They also have the option of giving you IV antibiotics as well. And then around the fifth day, you receive your first hyperthermia treatment. The goal is to get above 105 degrees. I actually got up to 107.5. You really can't go much higher than that, but that is a temperature that is safe for your body. And, and I remember before I went in, I looked at the doctor and I was like, I'm, I'm really sick. Like I'm, I'm not doing well, please get me as high as my body will let me go. I need, I need to get my life back. Um, and, and so they, it's, it's about a five hour, four to five hour procedure. You're sedated. You're in a twilight sleep. So you don't remember anything. And they also infuse IV antibiotics at that point. When your body's heated up, the IV antibiotics are able to penetrate the spirochete a lot more efficiently. So using that combined approach um, was very helpful. And the other benefit of hyperthermia treatment is not only does it get high enough to kill a lot of these pathogens, but it also breaks down these biofilms, which was the huge issue I had with antibiotics and why they didn't work for me. And hyperthermia boosts your immune system. So it's getting added at a three-part approach. Um, but you know, when I woke up later that day, I was exhausted. It felt like I had just run a marathon. I slept the rest of the night and, and I had a Herxheimer reaction. I had vertigo. I had flu like symptoms, but that is why it's nice that you're at a hospital that's detoxing you. So your body can get these toxins out of you as as fast as possible. Um, so, so yeah, I had like about five more days of intense detoxification. And then I was supposed to get my second hyperthermia, but I I still had a fever. So I was still having this Herxheimer reaction. And so they held my treatment off an additional day. Uh, The next day I was ready to get my second hyperthermia. Usually the second time you're able to go a little bit higher than the first time. And so they got me a little bit higher and I had a few more days of detoxing before I went home, but I thought I was going to come home feeling great. I was like, you know, the people that I had spoken to before I went for treatment were like, yeah, I came back and I felt 70% better. So I was like, I I need this. Like right now I'm in my early twenties. My brain is not functioning at all. I can't recognize my friends or family. I'm in a complete another world. 
Um, and, and if this treatment doesn't work, then I don't know what I'm going to do. Uh, yeah. And so, so I came back and I only felt a little bit better, which was really scary initially. Um, so Michelle, yeah. before, before we go into that detail, I'm taking notes because you're giving us such great information. A lot of people struggle with the things that hyperthermia allowed you to overcome. And it seems like the first thing is that when your body gets heated to that high of a temperature, the most of the Lyme bacteria can't survive and it'll die at that temperature. And then I guess, secondly, the antibiotics are more effectively able to penetrate and kill the bacteria that you were getting through the IV while you're in the hyperthermia. So that was the, the really second main advantage. The third is that it breaks down the biofilm, which really keeps you sick because you can't get through to that biofilm. And finally, it actually boosts your immune system as well while doing all of that. Is that, is that an accurate summary of, of what you think are the main benefits of hyperthermia? Yes, that's, that's exactly right. And it's interesting because this, this hospital actually started off as a hospital for people with cancer. And so these doctors are oncologists and two women who had breast cancer, also breast cancer and Bartonella, there's a huge correlation with those two, but two women who had breast cancer also had uh, tick-borne infections. And so when they received hyperthermia treatment, a lot of their symptoms had dissipated. So these physicians did a ton of research and then started opening it up to people with Lyme disease as well. But, but yeah, hyperthermia is not only good for people with Lyme disease, it also helps people with cancer. And I don't, I don't know if you're interested, I can go into a little bit on how that works, but, um, but yeah, yeah but it has a lot of benefits. I'm sorry, Michelle, before we go to the cancer piece, a lot of the, the doubters or people that are considering hyperthermia and are sort of stuck we hear from them and they often tell us that hyperthermia will only really work for Lyme disease. I have so many co-infections and viruses, it won't work for me. So how, how would you respond to those claims that hyperthermia is really most effective for the Lyme bacteria, not other co-infections and viruses and parasites keeping you sick as well? That's a great question. Okay, so this is how I see hyperthermia treatment. A lot of times people go into it thinking it's gonna be a silver bullet treatment. And there is not a silver bullet treatment for people that have been suffering with tick-borne infections for a long time. Anyone who tells you that, I mean, just clearly doesn't understand how serious this infection is, how complicated tick-borne infections are in general. So I like to explain hyperthermia as it is a great treatment for killing a large pathogenic load. It's not going to kill everything. You know, there's 300 strains of Borrelia, most likely more than that. And then there's all these other co-infections. And while we are seeing it get at a lot of different co-infections, I don't think it's getting in every single strain. And so for, for me, I had Lyme, I had Bartonella, I had Protozoa rheumatica, which is similar to Babesia, malaria type infection. I also had mycoplasma pneumonia and Powassan virus. Now from the research I had done, Hyperthermia does not get at mycoplasma pneumonia and it does not kill Powassan virus. And Powassan virus is one of the worst of the co-infections. And so I was like, okay, what if I go there and it kills some of it, but it doesn't kill all, all of it. And I'm still left with these infections. Um, but what I did is, you know, hyperthermia killed a significant amount of pathogens. So when I came back, it put my body in a better position to respond to treatments. So I did do a lot of detoxification. And now for the first time I was like, oh, I'm feeling better after this, like glutathione IV or phosphatidylcholine IV. I actually see that, that it is doing something to my system. And then I also, I went on antimicrobial herbals to kill whatever was left uh, after hyperthermia treatment. So I used Steven Buhner's antimicrobial protocol and my body really was very receptive to those herbs as well. Um, so again, it's, it's not that 
I don't think there's a cure out there for tick-borne infections. Um, I think there are so many different factors in getting you better. So for people that have the mindset, like I'm going to go there and it's going to be a two week treatment and I'm going to get my life back. I don't think that's realistic. I have had that happen to some clients, but not to my clients that are in this severe debilitated state. Uh, It's a process. And so you have to look at hyperthermia as you're going to go over there and it's going to kill a lot of pathogens. They're going to help you detox, but it's not going to kill everything. It will put your body in a better position when you come back to respond to treatments, but there will be work to do when you come back and not only killing pathogens, we need to look into mold issues. We need to look into heavy metal issues. We need to look into cell membrane repair or limbic system retraining gut issues. I mean, there are so many factors involved into having a sustainable recovery and you can't do that in two weeks. So there's things to consider. There are so many topics to to discuss, but I have a, question I want to pose to you. Do you believe that you would have responded to the therapies that you did after hyperthermia as well if you didn't do hyperthermia? No, because I had tried all those therapies before I had went for hyperthermia um, and nothing was working. You know, I had tried detoxing. I didn't notice any results. I had tried antimicrobial herbals. I used Zeng's protocol. I used uh, Byron White's protocol. I even tried some of Stephen Buhner's protocol. Um, accountant's protocol as well. And I just, nothing was really able to cut it. Hyperthermia for me, it was the first thing that my body actually responded to and moved me forward. And then I put my body in a better position to be very receptive to other treatments to move me forward as well. So I have so many topics I still want to discuss with you, but if we could just briefly touch on the Lyme and cancer overlap that you were referring to earlier. Yes. So, you know, a lot of cancers are caused by infections and I've had a lot of clients who are interested in the hyperthermia treatment who have a history of tick-borne infections and and now have cancer. Um, And then also working with Galaxy Diagnostics, they are a laboratory that is probably one of the best laboratories that look into Bartonella and their research behind Bartonella. And they're seeing a huge correlation with breast cancer and Bartonella. But um, in regard to hyperthermia and the treatment of cancer, so basically your immune system can't can't see cancer cells. So it's not sure on where to fight. However, when your body is heated up, there are these heat shock proteins that go around your cancer cell. So now your immune system is saying, hey, okay, I know where to fight. Also, when your body is heated up, it's boosting your immune system and they can use one-tenth the dosage of anti-cancer therapies, whether it is chemo or another anti-cancer agent, depending on the patient. So they can use one-tenth the dose, but because um, your body's heated up, it's able to penetrate the cancer cells or their tumor cells a lot more effectively, but but also be a lot less toxic. Uh, They also do something where it's insulin potentiated chemotherapy where they starve the cells of sugar. So the the medicine is able to get into your system a lot more effectively. And so they're getting at it again at a a three-part approach. And so for people that, you know, have tried so many different treatments and have not responded to chemo or radiation and, and are really not sure what to do. I've seen them respond to these treatments, which is, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing to, to see the turnaround and, and the better quality of life people could have. So what's interesting is, and I'm probably going to get some of this wrong and I apologize and you can feel free to correct me, but we've had a past podcast guests go to Envita clinic 
uh, here in the States and they do something where they actually deprive the cells of sugar as well for like that hypoglycemic state. And they find that the body's more receptive to treatment for Lyme in that state. And it sounds like there's a parallel there between Lyme and cancer as well. Exactly. Okay. So I got that right. Good. So now I got the next thing I really want to focus on because you are also among many, many other things, a certified mold specialist. And I know that now once you came home from Germany, you really started to learn a lot more about mold and how mold can keep you sick if you're in a mold environment for a long period of time. So can you talk to us about how that got on your radar and how you started to learn about mold and Lyme and the overlap? Oh yeah, I could talk, I could talk about mold for forever. Um, and I think right now the, the Lyme community mold is becoming such a huge issue because, you know, people have been feeling good with tick-borne infections and now they're stuck in their homes because of COVID. And if their environment that they're around now 24 seven has mold mycotoxins, then it's causing people to have serious symptom flare-ups. And so I first became interested in mold mycotoxins when I came back from Germany, I was seeing slower results than, than was expected. And so I was, I looked into mold, but it wasn't really until I moved out of my apartment that my results were a lot faster when I was detoxing and doing cell membrane repair. And so I realized, oh, wow, this is, this is actually like a, a, a big factor in recovering. And so I did more research on mold and treatment. I took different binders to help get rid of the specific mold mycotoxins that I had. And then I also did something called the Patricia Kane protocol, which is four different IVs, phosphatidylcholine, phenylbutyrate, leucovorin, and glutathione. And phosphatidylcholine is a fat. So it goes in and helps um, mold mycotoxins like to attach to fats. And then it not only detoxes you, but it helps repair cell membrane damage, which is crucial when you're dealing with chronic illness that um, affect your body on a cellular level. So I looked into those treatments and, uh, and then my, my doctor, Dr. Cheryl Leventhal was a huge help in, and really making sure that, you know, my environment is safe. I'm getting a good air filter. I'm testing my home for mold and, um, and that my levels are going down with the treatment that I'm getting. But I, you know, I, <clears throat> I've never really had any setbacks after coming back from Germany. I've had some serious things happen to me. Like I've been in a car accident and, and different things. And so I'll feel I'll have flare ups, but they don't last that long. But when I am exposed to mold, that's when that's like my kryptonite. And I think that's the way for a lot of people with tick-borne infections. So to touch a little bit more on that, this past spring, I had a very serious exposure to mold and it caused a flare up that I've never experienced. And it wasn't just the usual bouncing back. This, this was, this, this really affected my system. And so that's when I decided to, um, become a, uh, mold certified practitioner. And I took Jill Krista's course. I also took Dr. Gupta's course. And then I also took, uh, Yes, we inspect. They have a course as well to learn how to like help your clients in inspecting homes. And so I took that course as well. And so really the past, like, I don't know, since last spring, I have done like a deep dive into everything I can possibly understand about mold mycotoxins and how big of an effect it can have on my clients because so many clients have had symptom flare-ups due to being inside of COVID and, and it's becoming a huge issue. So I have a few specific mold related questions before handing it back to Rich to see how you're feeling today. And many, many people, this is probably one of the top questions we get. 
I know mold is common in the Lyme community, but I don't know where to begin. So the specific question is, if somebody out there listening to this podcast thinks they might be suffering from mold illness in connection to Lyme, what lab work can they get to either prove or disprove that they are being impacted by mold in their health? That is a great question. Okay, so there's a few things that I would have them do. For my clients that come in, um, because a lot of these tests are expensive, I have them do a mold questionnaire. Uh, Dr. Jill Krista has a, you know, a mold questionnaire similar to like Burroughs-Scano's Lyme disease questionnaire. I have them fill that out. I also have them do a BCS test, which is on Dr. Shoemaker's website. Dr. Shoemaker is big in the Lyme and the mold community and has kind of been the pioneer to um, connect both worlds. On his website, you can do a visual test that goes over whether, um, you know, if you fail the test, that's usually a sign that you could be exposed to mold mycotoxins. And so I have my clients do that because it's like $10. And, and then I kind of see where they're at. And I also use this as an indicator marker by when, when we do work with treatments, how they're improving every few months. And so once I look at that, then I, then I say, okay, let's, um, let's test your, your body and your environment. And so I like real-time labs and Great Plains Laboratory, and they are both urine samples. And so I like having my clients do a provoked urine sample. Um, There are certain foods that I have my clients stay away from before this test. And then before this test, I will either have them get a glutathione IV, or I will have them do a sauna right before the test as well to provoke um, the mold mycotoxin test. And this test is pretty amazing because it'll show the top uh, mold mycotoxins that are in your system. And, and then, you know, when I get the results back, I have a chart that I'll show my clients and I'll say, okay, so here are the mold mycotoxins that you have. And these are the mold, my, these are the mold spores that it's coming from. So we match them up and here are the binders that are specific for those mold mycotoxins that are in your system. And then I have them do an ERMI test. And so this tests their environment, whether they test their home or their workplace or their school. But um, this basically is the PCR of your home. And so oftentimes when I have the results of the mold mycotoxin test in their body and the ERMI test of their environment, you can connect that the mold mycotoxins are the same um, toxins that would connect to the spores mold spores that are creating them. So it makes sense for the client. And then when I have them on certain binders, it's like, okay, this is why I'm taking these certain binders. But um, I mean, there's so many more details like with, with testing, if someone is super toxic, a lot of times their results for mold mycotoxins can come up low and it's because your body isn't detoxing efficiently. So you also need to be aware of all right, like how accurate are these results? Because sometimes with treatment and as their body detoxes, you can see the, when they get tested again, what the actual levels would be. And, um, and so the testing is a little bit tricky, but it's something that we do use as an indicator as, as well as the VCS test and, um, and, and their symptom improvements to make sure they're, we're going in the right direction. And then in regard to ERMI testing, there's an ERMI test and a Hertzme test. Uh, should I go into that as well? Well, yeah, but before you do that, though, I just want to, I want to recap. I'm, I'm literally taking notes very aggressively over here. So. Sorry. No, no, this is, I'm, I just I'm want passionate to recap. about this. I, yeah. No, no, this is, this is, 
this is more than we've ever gotten about mold. And I want to make sure we break this down because this is so important for people's healing, healing journey. So the first thing was it, was it BCS? Was it boy, Charlie, Sammy? Is that the right? Oh, V as in Victor. VCS. And somebody can Google that and go and pay $10 for this online test for 10 bucks. And then they'll be able to get a, an assessment, whether or not that if we think they may or may not be affected by mold, it sounds like, right? Yes. And again, like I have had clients that are exposed to mold mycotoxins and um, it's come up negative. So, you know, not all of these tests are 100% guarantee, but they are good tools to use in helping in, um, in trying to figure out what exactly is going on and then how they're improving. That, that's the first screening test. And then even if it's negative and you think you still suspect mold, the second thing would be to do some lab work, either through real-time labs or Great Plain labs. And they're both urine tests that can come back. And you like to provoke the mold by detoxing and getting the mold really activated in your system. So you can test positive for it more accurately with those labs, it sounds like. Exactly. Okay. So yeah, those are some ways of testing. Dr. Shoemaker also tests for SIRS, so chronic inflammatory response syndrome, which comes out after Lyme disease and mold. And so there is blood work that you can get. Oftentimes it's not always covered by insurance, but they're also really good indicators on when you're doing treatment with your, you know, with your patients or your clients, you can figure out like what levels you're dealing with and the inflammatory markers from the mold that are causing this and making sure you're moving in the right direction. So Michelle, are you saying that this mold exposure can actually cause SIRS, which is a very common thing with Lyme, this chronic inflammatory response syndrome? 100%. Okay. So that's another really important connection there that if people have chronic inflammatory response syndrome or have, are suffering from chronic inflammation, they should really look at mold and consider these, these steps you're providing us with and these screening methods. So we have one, the VCS test, which is online, very simple, $10. Number two, some of these labs that you can send away when provoking the, the mold to come out. And then number three, you refer to it as the Ernie test, which is testing your home and workplace, yet your actual physical space to identify the mold spores and connect them back with your, your lab work, right? So am I saying it right? How do you spell that Ernie? Just so people can research so that if they like to. Yeah, Ermi, E-R-M-I. And so the Ermi tests, the... Um, the top five, uh, top 35 uh, mold mycotoxins. And then there is a, um, another test that goes with it, which is called a hurts me test. And I want to say it's like the top most uh, toxic five mold mycotoxins. So it's, you really want to make sure you're working with someone that understands how these tests work because there are two different scores that you can get and really making sure you understand the more toxic mold mycotoxins and their levels is an indicator on how bad that that environment really is. Michelle, could you spell, was it Hertzy? Is that what you said? Hurts me. It's um, H-E-R-T-M, Hertz, or Hertz, S-M-I, I believe. Okay. And obviously uh, you are a resource and you provide consulting services for people that are, are going through these, these problems and you can help guide them if necessary. And I know Rich will talk more about that. I just want to put that out there for now. So, so this final step is you test your home and your workplaces with these two tests, the hurts me and the ERMI testing. And then you pair that up with the lab work, you identify the spores, and then you get specific binders to help your body rid the, the mold and mycotoxins in your body to start helping you feel better. It sounds like that's the final step of this process. So 
That, that definitely is a, a big part to the recovery process, but you do need a lot more than binders. You, there's all these other ways that I help my clients detox. We also look into cell membrane repair. And then a lot of my clients need help with limbic system retraining. So then I have them do like the Gupto different Dr. Gupta, but, uh, that, that retraining or, um, uh, I'm drawing a blank DNRS, uh, which is another type of limbic system retraining that can help in the process as well. So there are a lot of different factors to look into in recovering from mold mycotoxins, but binders is a big part of it. Okay. So I definitely lied. I have one more question before giving it to Rich, and this is going to be the DNRS and the whole limbic system component, because we've realized that so many guests find that that's the, the final piece to the puzzle to help them start to feel better. And their brain sort of gets stuck in this fight or flight mode. And it's, it's something they can't control. And they need to do these DNRS techniques or these neural retraining techniques. And, and it really helps them a lot. So can you just talk to us a little bit about what you recommend and, and why this is helpful for people that are suffering from Lyme and mold illness? Yeah. So there's two different programs. Um, there is Dr. Gupta's program and then there's Annie Hopper's program. I've looked into both and I think that they can both be very helpful. I decided to do Dr. Gupta's program to learn a little bit more. Um, and, and so with my, with my recent exposure this past spring, I, I never had a setback like this. So it caused a ton of inflammation and, and then I was like, shoot, did it reactivate my tick-borne infections? It didn't, but, um, I got out of my living environment. I actually ended up having to throw everything that I owned away. And this is after washing it thoroughly with specific things that clean mold mycotoxins. I still was sensitive to it. So I threw everything away and, and then I started treatment. Um, and the treatment was helping decrease the inflammation in my brain from these mold mycotoxins and moving me forward. I was tested for the Richie Shoemaker SERS biomarkers to help me figure out, okay, I am moving in the right direction. Um, and I was doing the Patricia Kane protocol with these binders to help get these toxins out at a more efficient rate. Um, but even after doing that for a few months, I still was feeling like, you know what, like I'm still, I'm still reacting to things. And I was more reactive to food, which I, you know, I, I haven't reacted to food in, in a really long time. Um, so I had this like chronic inflammatory response syndrome from this, even after I was on top of it so fast, it was because my mold exposure was so extreme. Um, and, and so I, I looked into that and, and I was like, okay, um, I'm doing a lot better now, but I, something's up with my limbic system and, and I need to look into that. And, and I've done it for my clients. So I knew that this was kind of what was going on with myself. So I looked into Dr. Gupta's program and I started doing the program myself and it has been very beneficial, but it's definitely, this process is something that you have to be very persistent and consistent with to see results. And there has, it's been very frustrating and, and difficult um, to have a flare up of symptoms, but you know, there, there's a reason why this is happening and there are treatments to get you better. So while it has been incredibly frustrating, it's also like, okay, well, you know, there's ways to get me better. And now I am feeling better. So Michelle, you were supposed to be a teacher following in your mother's footsteps. Um, how did this journey that you've had with your health change uh, that, that uh, professional dream that you had? <laughs> it significantly changed it. Um, so I, you know, I came back from Germany from hyperthermia treatment 
And I started doing a ton of research on diet and detoxification and, and, uh, and then I started really getting big into the functional world. And so I, I connected, I stayed connected with the hospitals that I went with. Oops, sorry. Um, and so I stayed connected with the hospitals that, that I had gone to for hyperthermia treatment and I started writing blogs about it. And so people had contacted me and said, you know, I'm very interested in the hyperthermia treatment. What was your experience? Can you help us with any information? From there, I decided to create Lyme Cancer Services, which is a company that helps schedule people who are interested in hyperthermia treatment. We work as a liaison between the patients all around, all around the world, and then the doctors at these hospitals. And so everyone that works at Lyme and Cancer Services, we've been through the process ourselves, we have Lyme disease, and we can help hold your hand, make sure you fully understand all the treatments over there and the different options you have in regard to hospitals. So, you know, I started going in that direction. And then helping these people more and more, I I realized that I wanted to go back to school and become a nutritionist. So now I'm a clinical nutritionist. I went back to school for human nutrition. Um, so more, the school that I went to was more functional medicine based. And then I opened up my nutrition practice, Balancing Pathways, where I help people not only with hyperthermia treatment, but also tick-borne infections in general, environmental toxins, gut issues, inflammatory conditions, neurological conditions. And specifically before they go to Germany or Mexico, and now actually this treatment is in the US um, and when they come back. So that if you, if you spend the money to do hyperthermia treatment, we wanna make sure you do it right. And because tick-borne infections are so complicated and there's all these factors in recovering, that when you come back, we're looking into all those recovery factors so that you have sustainable results. Um, so, so yeah, I, my, I went from being a fifth grade teacher to uh, now working with Lyme and Cancer Services and then my nutrition practice, Balancing Pathways. Um, and then, you know, as I am working with these hospitals, it's been like eight or nine years that I'm working with these hospitals. I am noticing kind of a, a pattern of when people come back, what is and isn't working. And so that's, that's kind of where I got the idea of the nutrition practice. But even with my nutrition practice, my hands were tied in some, in, in some aspect because I'm not a physician. So while I can be like, Hey, I think phosphatidylcholine would be really beneficial for you. I can't write a script. And many doctors are on board. I work as a team with many different physicians that my clients are seeing, but some of them aren't. And it's already stressful in a full-time job for these these people to be getting treatment. So it's nice to have a team that kind of is on the same page and moving that person forward. So recently I just paired up with a company called Lifespan Medicine and they are in LA uh, and we are working together to come up with a program to help people before they go for hyperthermia treatment and when they come back uh, from hyperthermia treatment and making sure that we cover everything. So the less toxic you are, the better you tolerate treatment before you go. Uh, that's what we do before they go. And then when they come back, all these doctors are on board in helping with infusions and, and different supplements and looking into mold and heavy metals and gut issues. And so it's, it's a program set up to make sure that we're not missing any steps and people are able to really fully recover and they have the support system to do that.
So folks are looking to work with you. What would be the best way for them to get in touch with you? Yeah, so they have a few different options. In regard to scheduling for hyperthermia treatment, Lyman Cancer Services is the company that does that. So um, the website is just, you know, www.lymancancerservices. And then my email is michelle at lymancancerservices.com. And they can also connect with me at my website, Balancing Pathways, and it's michelle at balancingpathways.com. Or they can connect with Lifespan as well. And and so Lifespan has their own site and, and their own team, which I'm excited to be a part of. So Michelle, you're doing so much to help the community and, and, and it just has been a fantastic uh, podcast interview that we've done with you. We've really enjoyed it uh, so much, but I do have one more ask for you. And that is if God forbid your mom came walking into your apartment and she had a tick biting her on her arm, what would you recommend that she do so that she wouldn't have to go through a terrible chronic Lyme disease journey? That's a great question. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that has definitely happened where close family members or friends have come in with a tick. And so, you know, we take the tick off, we put it in a plastic bag and we actually send it. There's different laboratories that will test these ticks to see, is it positive for Lyme or any co-infections? So we send it in and then I immediately have them go to their physician and go directly on antibiotics because antibiotics can be hugely effective, especially if you are, you know, just a bit. Uh, The issue is that because these pathogens replicate every few weeks, that oftentimes when people are first bit, they're not on antibiotics long enough to really fully get it. So you want to make sure you're on antibiotics for at least a month and then also make sure you support your system because, you know, antibiotics will affect your gut. So taking probiotics and anything for candida, making sure you're on a low sugar diet. So you're supporting your system, but also getting this pathogenic infection out of your system as fast as possible. Thank you for listening to the Tick Bootcamp interview with Michelle McCune. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Michelle McCune and her Lyme disease journey, please visit our Instagram pages at Michelle McCune underscore or Lyme and Cancer Services. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of the post. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick by Blueprint that has been inspired by the information that's been provided to us by guests like Michelle on this podcast. We urge you to visit our website at www.tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. Please note we would appreciate any input or improvements you would like to offer to us. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, please take a minute to leave us an honest review and rating on iTunes or our website. As always, we thank you for listening.